I'm excited to have you with us and I can imagine there's many developments that will certainly follow through with in the weeks and months to come. I touched on the South African Post Office, Tongot Hewlett uh, and many other businesses that find themselves going through this process at the moment. Uh, but maybe let's start there, right? Just for us to uh, demystify the business rescue process. So often we typically think that uh, it's uh, when a business is... Um, reached its end and no longer able to survive. But I'm made to understand that the process is uh, to do exactly the opposite, to ensure that if there are aspects of a business that can survive, uh, business rescue practitioners bring that to the fore. But give us some context. Sure. So, Google, I mean, just to start off, I think, as a starting point, is that what is business rescue? Remember, it's a procedure that's designed to facilitate the rehabilitation of a company that's financially distressed and, and uh, either return it back to a solvent status or to result in a better return for creditors than an immediate liquidation. So you do see instances where companies file for business rescue, but they end up doing a winding up through a business rescue process. Mm. Um, similar to a liquidation, it's often a lot quicker um, and more expedient in certain instances. So that's really what business rescue is in, in a very small nutshell put together. Um, it's quite a complicated process in its entirety in terms of how it unfolds the rights of various creditors. But let's start by saying the following. If a company is financially distressed, and by financial distress we run the test is, can you pay your debts as and when they fall due and payable in the ensuing six months? Or is there a reasonable likelihood that the company will become insolvent in the next six months into the future and be liquidated? Then the board has an obligation which is imposed on it underneath section 129 sub 7. The board has to do either one of two things, and it's the mandatory provision in terms of the act. Either the board must file for business rescue by way of a board resolution, or alternatively, they must pass a resolution and notify all affected persons why they are financially distressed and why they should not be placed into business rescue, which is more often than not referred to as a suicide resolution. Um, only one company to date that we know of has filed that resolution, and a week later, they were forced into filing for business rescue nonetheless. Mm. Um, typically, when you file for business rescue, people always talk about two ways that a company goes into rescue. There's actually three. I'll touch on the third in a moment. Sure. The first way is that the board passes a board resolution. It's a simple majority. So it's 50 plus one. Passes a resolution, files for business rescue. You cannot pass a board resolution if there's a pending liquidation application against the company. So if someone's launched a liquidation mm. application, and it's been served on the company, you cannot pass a board resolution. Gotcha. The only way you can then go into business rescue is by way of a court application to place yourself into rescue. The second way a company is placed into business rescue is either a, an employee, a trade union, a creditor, a shareholder brings an application to court and says the company should be placed into business rescue and they would have to make out a case for a business rescue um, for the company, which is the second way. And the third way, which is not really touched on in town, is generally a court acting on its own accord can place a company into business rescue. And typically, we haven't seen one of those yet, but that will happen typically where you may have a deadlock in management, shareholder fight, uh, oppression of minority rights, etc., or a liquidation application launched and the judge says, I don't believe that this is a liquidation, I believe that this is a business rescue. Mm -hmm. Which is a third way, it hasn't really been, um, there's no case law on the third one yet, but the Act makes provision for it. 
Got you. Really intriguing that uh, these are the three avenues that uh, can be pursued within the South African uh, legal landscape. What I'm intrigued by was the court application uh, that is brought about by creditors or employees or other interested stakeholders. Uh, And I'm intrigued to understand the kind of argument that would have to be formed there. I'm assuming there'd be significant timelines, uh, numbers, data uh, and documentation that would have to be brought forward as evidence. Look, from a trade union perspective, they fall into a slightly different um, bracket altogether because the rights of a trade union in further provisions in terms of the Companies Act, they're entitled to access management accounts and certain financial records um, over there altogether. So they're entitled to actually, you know, acquire more rights than most employees and than most creditors. Sure. But when a party brings an application to court, assuming a creditor or a shareholder, you have to make out a case to court to say why the company is financially distressed, it's unable to pay its debts, and you'll have to make out a case to the court that there's a reasonable prospect of rescuing the company. And by reasonable prospect, it's something more than mere speculation. You'd have to make out a case. Mm. So you'd have to allege either it was gross misappropriation of funds by management or management is running it completely into the ground. You have to build a solid case for the judges to make a decision in terms of whether business rescue is the viable vehicle in that instance. I find this so intriguing because I'm already thinking of a few scenarios we've previously discussed here on the show, uh, and that's if business rescue is used appropriately in South Africa. As you alluded to, at times we often find uh, boards uh, or executive directors or other uh, interested stakeholders looking to go into liquidation uh, immediately. So is there, I guess, an adequate understanding and appropriate use of the business rescue process? It's a very good question which you touch on, and and I think there's a number of answers in different directions, so I'll try and answer most of them. Business rescue in reality is a phenomenal tool if it's placed in the right hands and the right practitioner. In South Africa at the moment, I think we have in excess of 180 licensed business rescue practitioners. The difficulty with the 180 is I'd probably tell you close to 20 of them are probably suitable, you know, practitioners that you can rely upon, depend upon, they're well known in the industry. You know, all the banks know them, the household names, and, and they do the job and they work efficiently and they get it done. And amongst that, you do find opportunistic business rescue practitioners, trades you do similarly with the liquidation field. You know, so it's sometimes a mixed bag in between. Mm. So it can be a great thing and it can be a bad thing in the wrong hands. One of the, the criticisms on business rescue is the inability of a practitioner to hold similar to what is known as a 417 inquiry or an insolvency inquiry under liquidation proceedings, because as much as the Act gives the business rescue practitioner the power to investigate the affairs, the practitioners always tell you the business rescue is a forward-looking process, it's not a retrospective process, which to a large extent is kind of fundamentally wrong in the thought process, because you need to understand what went wrong in the past, and if you need to take steps to set aside void and voidable dispositions, you must take those steps as a practitioner. Now, on a business rescue practitioner side, he'll tell you that He's only got limited resources. He cannot subpoena the directors to an inquiry. He's got no money to run, um, you know, forensic audit, etc. Mm-hmm. And you'll find all these obstacles and reasons. And, you know, more often than to try to get a creditor to fund it becomes very difficult under business rescue. So sometimes a liquidation is a better suited vehicle for a company than a business rescue. Mm-hmm. It all depends upon the circumstances under its financial distress and the reasons as to why it went in. Mm, makes sense. And I can imagine uh, case by case basis. And, and you've obviously witnessed this in much of the work and experience that, that you've gained, Gareth. Uh, and that, I guess, leads me to the skill set, the, the business rescue practitioners themselves, uh, <coughs> individuals who essentially would run out and roll out this, this kind of process. What kind of diligence or training do they have to go through to make sure that they are uh, adequate uh, to, to fulfill this particular role? 
So the one thing is that, you know, to be a business rescue practitioner, you need to be accredited with a regulatory body, a body which has been accredited by the Company and Intellectual Property Commission. For example, you have SERIPA, the South African Restructuring and Solvency Practitioners Association. One, they have to be a member there. They have to be a member in good standing as well. And then compounded with that, when you apply to be licensed as a practitioner, you need to set out your full CV, your full background. Um, you have to substantiate whether or not you've been struck from a role of a practicing director previously under Section 68, I think it was over there, certified copies of your qualifications. So you can come from an accounting, chartered accountant, a legal background, or if you come from a general business background, you need a business equivalent qualification sure. um, over there. And then obviously there's three different tiers. You've got a junior practitioner, an experienced practitioner, and a senior practitioner, depending upon your years of experience, depends upon your ranking and the tariff that you can then charge. 100%. I'm also assuming independence plays a very critical role here just to avoid any uh, influence. Correct. So independence of the practitioner is of paramount importance. And remember, once a business rescue practitioner has taken an appointment as a practitioner, he cannot take an appointment as a liquidator once he flips and converts the business rescue into a liquidation oh. that he cannot do at all. And the important thing about a business rescue practitioner is that he takes over full management and control of the company in substitution of management and in substitution of the board, effectively. He can delegate powers and functions to pre-existing management. He can appoint new management to the board. He can remove persons from office, so he can remove directors who are problematic. And he can appoint new persons as part of the board at any point in time. Now, the important thing is that he's got the same liabilities and duties as that of a director, except for where he acts in good faith. So that's sort of the overrider and the kicker behind his liabilities and duties. So when everyone says that a practitioner is an officer of the court, the unfortunate thing, you know, and it's unfortunate because one of the Gupta cases of Arlensart, it actually watered down the meaning of an officer of a court to effectively mean nothing. So mm. don't rely on that provision for a BRP. Very true. Sure, if you've just joined us, it's 17 minutes after 7 o'clock. We're having an, an intriguing conversation with Gareth. Gareth Creeman, uh, partner at Cox Yates, giving us some insight into demystifying business rescue. You might be asking yourself, why are we having this conversation? Well, of late, we have been seeing a number of South African businesses which have uh, gone through a business rescue process. Think SAA uh, a few years ago and think of uh, South African Post Office, which also took place last year. And just today, an update that we saw on an entity like Tongat Hewlett. Uh, We've been discussing the various uh, understandings of uh, what a business rescue process is, how it can actually be uh, uh, implemented uh, and of course the various methods and, and key themes that do need to be prioritized not only by the practitioners but I guess uh, uh, those key stakeholders who have a vested interest uh, in the business or institution which itself is finding itself in a, a business rescue process uh, and Gareth I, I love how you mentioned earlier that um, a business rescue practitioner cannot actually be part of the liquidation process if that uh, ends up being the decision so independence and governance remain so critical uh, and, and key with it the within this various, uh, this particular environment. What this leads me to ask then is um, the various parties that, that need to be involved in continuously updated because they're creditors, they're vested stakeholders and employees as well. And I'm assuming depending on the outcome of the rescue process, uh, a follow through that will also have to be implemented. Uh, typically, how long does this take? How complex can it be? Uh, how many parties need to be notified? Because it, it can differ from organization to organization. Correct. So, I mean, typically in terms of the Companies Act, Business Rescue was designed to be a three to six month process. Depending upon the complexity of a company, three to six months is not enough time, you know, to rehabilitate a company or to resolve the various issues, you know, that it may be plagued with. 
more often than not, you have different competing interests between different pools of creditors and fighting for different aspects of a rescue or they're trying to acquire the business or stop it running in its entirety for whatever reason that the creditors or affected persons may have. Um, and sometimes a business rescue can drag out sometimes up to two years. Um, more often than not, you find business rescues can drag on depending upon regulatory requirements. And when I say regulatory, I refer to mining rights to be transferred per the DMRE um, or any other regulatory requirements could sometimes hinder or slow down a process of business rescue plan being adopted, or it could be contingent upon a number of approvals that need to be put in place. But typically, a practitioner should be publishing a plan fairly quickly um, in terms of the process, and he should be on top of the company at a very early stage. By the time he gets in, he should be able to identify the root cause of the financial distress and take the appropriate steps inside of the business to start you know, um, clamping down in terms of the company's, you know, loss-making divisions or whichever the case may be, and then obviously formulate a business rescue plan from there on out. Um, and in terms of the business rescue plan, the moment that has been published within 10 days, not less than five, the practitioner is supposed to be called what people often refer to as a second meeting. It's actually wrong, but it's actually referred to as a section 151 read with what section 152, where effectively they will then vote upon the adoption of the plan and if it comes into being, which requires 75% of creditors to vote in favor of the plan, of which 50% must be independent. Okay. Um, and if the plan is adopted, the practitioner must then start implementing the plan per the conditions that he set out in the plan. Um, so it's quite a stringent process over there altogether. And the one thing which creditors often overlook is that when they look at the business rescue plan, when it has been published, they don't take into account what are the rights and of the creditors or the affected persons or the employees that are being affected by the plan. Mm. More often than not, they just look at the dividend and say, I'm getting two cents in the rand. Mm. They don't look at, I'm getting two cents in the rand, but I'm foregoing my rights to pursue potentially a guarantee against a holding company or something else along the lines. So you need to read each and every aspect of the business rescue plan as a creditor or an affected person and take the appropriate steps over there to preserve your rights, which more often than not, creditors don't. So what you find in the trends over here at the moment mm -hmm is that the smaller creditors are looking at the bigger creditors in the room and they say, you know, you've got bank A, B, C, D, E, you've got five banks lined up over there. Mm. They're not taking any steps, so why must I, as a creditor, lower down on the line? And the reality is that, you know, more often than not, certain people have already figured out what their security is and what their rights and how it is going to be affected. Whose sometimes a smaller is that, though, uh, the education around your rights? So business rescue is supposed to be a balancing exercise of all parties' rights, and the practitioner is supposed to do a balancing exercise of all parties' rights. And this is where the creditors need to, more often than not, create what is known as a creditors' committee and to hold the practitioner accountable and to consult with the practitioner on the formulation of the plan mm. and to hold him in check, you know, over there altogether. But more often than not, we've seen instances where practitioners formulate these plans to protect directors, which is sometimes wrong. Sure. So much to learn here, Gareth. And, and as you say, it's, it's a, it can be quite a, a technical process where, where many um, uh, mistakes can be made. And, and maybe that's an interesting point that I also want to hear from you, your perspective. You know, are there times where you've witnessed a business rescue uh, and in hindsight recognize that it could have been done differently and there were particular errors that might have uh, been made uh, or rights of, of shareholders and, and, and stakeholders that, that weren't necessarily respected or prioritized? Yeah, look, let me say this is there are a number of good business rescues in town and there are a number of good plans that have been adopted um, and have gone through. Um, there have been some that have gone through in a matter of six months where creditors were given 100 cents in the rand. 
you know, hindsight is always an exact science. I mean, you look back on something sometimes in his business rescues and you say as, as a creditor, maybe I should have taken steps a lot quicker as a creditor or taken steps a lot quicker as an employee to preserve my security, my rights, my interest. Maybe we could have done something different which would have resulted in a better return for us um, than just simply adopting the practitioner's way of the plan. So sometimes challenge the practitioner. He says to you, I'm selling the business off. You know, find out, you know, who's he selling it to? Is it a competitor? Is it a newcomer in town? Do they have expertise? And no business rescue is identical to the next one. Every business rescue has a different element to it. You know, so it's not one shoe fits all. You know, it's sometimes custom made. So you can't always apply this unilateral adoption of an attitude saying, you know, company A that I went through was a quick process. You know, company B should be quick as well. Not necessarily the case. Everyone's plagued with different problems. Mm. Uh, to close off with, is this a skill set that uh, is still re- required in South Africa? Or I guess I should rephrase the question. Do we have adequate skills uh, within South Africa to actually manage the workflow of business rescue cases in the country? I think I think to a large extent, CRPC need to reevaluate the licenses of some of the business rescue practitioners in this town. Mm-hmm. And to a large extent, I think creditors need to start holding business rescue practitioners accountable in terms of their conduct and the way in which they conduct a lot of these business rescues. Um, but with that being said, we do have the skill set. We have some phenomenal business rescue practitioners in this town. And those are the same practitioners that often take appointments as restructuring offices. So pre a business rescue and they try and do an informal workout without the moratorium that's given to you or the temporary stay of legal proceedings under business rescue. So they do informal workouts as well. We certainly have the skill set, but I think creditors do need to hold these practitioners accountable under the same liabilities and duties as directors. Gareth, always a pleasure speaking to you. We always walk away learning so much more, knowing so much more uh, and having a better understanding of um, uh, how the world works, especially within the realm of business rescue, which can become quite technical. Thank you so much for your time this evening, sir. If you missed it live, catch the broadcast on kaya959.co.za.